Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. The Revised Common Lectionary from which our lessons come uh, most every week, um, which are being preached on and read in sanctuaries around the world uh, every week, uh, kind of cuts this account off a little bit. And I think you should know the rest of the story, as someone named Paul Harvey used to say. So she read this and ended with this idea that he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. But reading the next verse, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And in this scene, Peter takes him to side and begins to rebuke him and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, my sake, will find it. That's the rest of the story. Now, I spent almost 30 years of my adult life coaching baseball and soccer, eventually at the high school level. In my earliest years, though, it was youth soccer at the youngest years. I mean, these are the little ones, like we had up here this morning. They run around like bees, all gathered around a flower. Little ones acting like ants, (laughs) chasing after the ball, around the field, wherever it goes. And there's that inevitable child on the field who wants nothing to do with it all, who just simply got planted there by their parents. He's in the net. He's picking up weeds and blowing the little things into the air. He's looking at the seagulls, usually facing totally the wrong way, really. And I I used to marvel at one little boy. I'll never forget him. And I know him still, by the way. He grew up and became a beautiful, wonderful chef in New York City. has his own place. But this little guy, he was not the most skilled. That's a nice way to put it. But without a doubt, he was the most energetic and enthusiastic little one on the field. It seemed like he'd throw his body into the ball wherever it may be. Whatever crowd was gathered around it, he was determined 
to be in on every play. Now, the position that I had assigned him didn't matter to him. Uh, I had taught the little kids about sharing the ball, about spreading out. He didn't care. That kid was everywhere. Now, physically, he was remarkable. He raced up and down the field with this kind of endless energy after this elusive ball. It seemed like he could go on forever. And what you need to know about him, though, is that his foot and his leg were turned in since birth. It was a malady from birth. And even more remarkable were his parents, who sat on the sidelines of every game, every practice, beaming with pride, so glad for what their son was able to be doing. Yelling encouragement, cheering him on, saying crazy and helpful things like, dive for it. (laughs) Or go after the ball, or go get it. Things, of course, I think sometimes the little kids must be thinking, how dumb are my parents? But they doted on him, right? They doted on him. And and I could even remember hearing the other parents talking about how remarkable this boy was. How they admired him. And I often found myself thinking after a game just how amazing those parents and their passion and their love was. It was beautiful. Now, for those of you who have been parents, I think you know kind of what I'm talking about. Imagine your precious child born with a kind of misshapen foot and leg. And if I had been his parent, I would certainly have thought twice about involving my kid in soccer. In all honesty. There would be safer venues for a kid to play in. I think I'd have wanted him to stay at home. I'd probably have him take up the guitar or a piano. Now, I don't know if I could have urged him to expose his physical limitations to all the world to see, right? And even the little kids who can be monsters out there who teased him along the way. I think I would have pushed for something less risky. And I would have been wrong. I know that now. Will those of you who are parents agree with me that when I say that one of the greatest challenges in being a parent, of being so in love with this little one whom you help bring into the world, is to get over the tendency to protect that kid? It's tough. Today they even have a term for it. It's it's actually a condition. It's called being a helicopter parent. One who hovers over their children, even into the teen and the young adult years. We have hovering parents over 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds in our culture. I mean, in our world today, think about it, just how difficult is it to let these kids go and be and become your child comes along, it's a gift from God, you've lived through a good bit of life yourself already, and parents are supposed to shield, right? 
You're there to protect them. I used to tell my kids that my purpose in being a parent was to keep them alive until they were 18. I mean, and if you can protect your child, if you can shield them from the realities of the world, some of the hard stuff, I mean, why wouldn't you? Yet in our better moments, we know that it's impossible to do that perfectly. It's even wrong. There's no way to shield our kids and those we love from all of life's hurts and ugliness and even evil. The growing child has to venture forth into the world, learning to fall down, get back up again, and maybe being a little bit wiser. That's the way it is when you love somebody, isn't it? It's only human to want to shield them from pain. Let's say that you you have a friend who you've been out with one evening and they've obviously had way too much to drink. It's not a sign of love for you to say, I go ahead and drive home. If you get in a wreck, maybe you'll learn something from it. That's not love. People who care, people who love, constantly intervene. We protect. We shield. And so, I'm going back to that gospel lesson for today, and I am feeling some sympathy for Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. This rabbi's little flock that's been puttering around with him for a couple of years now. This lesson occurs, as she said, in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, sort of a resort area in those days, and really today still is. The Romans had kind of turned it into a sort of spa. It was a beautiful, it's a beautiful sea, and the cool breezes come in in the evening. And this is where Jesus and his band of Mary followers are hanging out these days. It's like they're kind of recovering from some tough ministry. It's as if they knew that there'd be a few good days to have off. But in this pleasant, serene, and beautiful setting, Jesus drops a bomb. And that's the part that wasn't included in the Gospel today. The bomb is this. He tells them that the time was quickly approaching when he'd have to go to Jerusalem and deal with all those folks who were out to get him. That he was going to fall into the hands of the religious authorities, that he was going to suffer, and there he would die. And they didn't even hear the last word about his promise to rise again. The shock of what he was telling them in this beautiful setting when it seemed like things were just finally getting going and and there was a great thing happening out there and the crowds were showing up and this movement of Jesus was gaining traction. And now to hear this is more than his disciples can bear. And so Peter, Mr. Foot in the Mouth, He speaks for everyone when he says this. He says, oh no, not on my watch. Now, no doubt, he was already thinking about the ways they could shield Jesus from all this pain. 
the ways they could protect him, to, to help him escape the inevitable death that he talked about, to protect this one whom they loved from such a tragedy. And Jesus recognizes in their best intentions, not love, but he recognizes Satan. Even though they haven't urged his followers to take arms against the government or the religious establishment, they haven't been pushing for anything illegal or that could hurt somebody else. Instead, they were urging him to do something really good, to simply not walk into this path of destruction so they could keep the ministry going. They could reach more and more people for God. And if they could just keep him safe and keep him secure and protect him, then he could be remembered one day. He could be loved like other great rabbis before and since. He can be remembered for what he said, not for how he died. The passage says, Jesus began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and to the cross. In order to be who he really was. In order for him to be what he was given to do. He couldn't walk another direction. To be who he was, he simply couldn't avoid the messy ending that lie ahead. So this scene, in a sense, answers the same question posed earlier by Jesus when I talked with the little children about who do people say that I am? In the words of the musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, (laughs) they were saying, what's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. Tell me what's going on out there in the real world. And so they told him. Some say you're a reincarnation of one of the great prophets from the past. And he was certainly a prophet. He cared more about the opinion of God than the opinion of people. Others were saying, they reported, that he was a wonderful teacher, and he certainly was that, a powerful teacher. He was a master storyteller. He was an inspiring preacher. He was authoritative. He was unforgettable, they said. And still others, they said, called him a healer, a miracle worker, with a divine touch. He could restore you with a touch. So he's a prophet, a teacher, a healer, and a whole lot of people were content with just that until stumbling, bumbling, reactive, foot-in-the-mouth Peter finally takes a stab, sensing that they hadn't quite gotten it right yet. And he yells out, Savior! And Jesus says, Right you are, Pete. And he was wrong a moment later. I think what happened that day out at Caesarea Philippi was that Jesus' friends got a stunning glimpse of just what Jesus was up to. That unlike the great rabbis that had come before him, this guy had indeed been sent by God to be Messiah. The Savior of the whole world. And it scared the wits out of them. So that when they say, God forbid this should happen to you, Lord, 
They're trying to keep him in his place. They're trying to keep him safe. They're trying to protect him. They're trying to box him up and in and keep him just a truthful prophet and a great teacher and an inspiration and a moral compass and a fine physician and a miracle worker. And many people in today's world would grant Jesus all those things. But in our heart of hearts, we know the truth of what His disciples were just learning. That Jesus was about something bigger than morality. Bigger than ethics. Bigger than politics. Bigger than institutions. And bigger than even religions. He was about taking our ideas and our plans our failings and our sin and our brokenness, our human systems of authority and policy and tradition of taking them to the cross for Pete's sake and for ours. There's going to be blood. There's going to be death. The whole earth is going to heave and shake. The very heavens are going to be ripped open. And to that, the disciples were saying, God forbid it. But God didn't. For Pete's sake, and for our salvation, Jesus had to confront the powers that be. Jesus was sent to take upon Himself the sin of the world. A world that couldn't save itself. Jesus had to stare death in the face. He had to be nailed to wood to breathe and bleed His last, to be raised up again to show us what our future would look like. That's right, it had to be this way. It wasn't an accident. As it turned out, Jesus was giving us a foretaste of the feast to come. Securing our future for us that so we could follow Him. And if we follow Him, where do we follow Him? We follow Him into sharing His passion for people, for the world, for those in need, for the marginalized, for the broken, for the sinners, for the suffering. We follow Him into loving and caring for other people. To be kind to other people. To be His hands and His feet and His heart in a world that God loves so very much. We are called to follow. And if we can't follow, just get out of the way. We're called to follow all the way into eternity. So as imperfect as we may be, God was compelled to lead us into a world that Jesus was sent to save. For Pete's sake and for ours, Jesus is the Messiah, the salvation of the entire world. Nothing less than that. So, who do you say that Jesus is? Well, our whole life becomes an answer to that question, doesn't it? Amen.
Glory be to you, Heavenly Father, through Christ our Lord, who with the Holy Spirit reigns eternally, one God, now and always. Amen.